You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Well, go ahead, church, and grab a copy of God's Word and meet me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, as we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Christ. If you need a copy of God's Word, go ahead and raise your hand. I should be happy to bring you one. Now, we have been defining throughout our series that supremacy means that person or thing who in your heart or mind uh, surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. In other words, it's that thing or that person that you grant permission to rule and govern your life. In chapter 1, Paul's been arguing that the only person that should ever have that level of permission in your life is Jesus Christ. But in chapter 2, he is giving us now a warning that there are rip currents of false teaching in our culture in the day of the Colossians um, that would seek to drag us out into a sea of doubt and despair when it comes to our confidence and the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we started digging into what some of those false teachings were. We saw that they were called mysticism and Gnosticism, asceticism, words that I know most of us use every single day. And today, we're going to talk about legalism. And I know that some of us are probably wondering, this all feels a little bit top shelf. This all feels like, is this really connected in any way to everyday life? Does any of this Gnosticism, legalism, these words that we never use, does it, does it really matter? We have to remember that the truths that Paul is using to fight against the lies is the bedrock of how we live our lives and what happens to us in eternity. And if we do not have a solid, grounded foundation in the theology and the doctrines, the deep things of God in Scripture, we will be easy prey to a culture that is constantly feeding us lies to try to drag us away from the sufficiency of Christ. One such individual that has been drug away is Aaron Rodgers. If you don't know much about Aaron Rodgers, he's 36 years old, um, a celebrated quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, dating Danica Patrick. He's, by all intents and purposes, enjoying his best life. But the reality is, if you don't know anything about him, he grew up in a conservative Christian home, uh, a devout Christian family. He went to church his whole life. He attended youth group. He went to uh, Life Action, which I believe is a ministry for sports, uh, sports active youth. He went on missions trips. This guy was in it. But he says by his own testimony that somewhere along the way, as he started meeting other people of other faiths, he started to question his own beliefs. So much so that in an interview with his girlfriend, Danica Patrick, he said this, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this? Now, my point is not to dissect everything wrong with his comment, because there's plenty, but to illustrate the fact that the rip currents of false teaching are real and the casualties are real. 
The article went on to say this about Rogers. Though Rogers didn't specifically refer to himself as an atheist, someone who does not believe in the existence of God or gods, his statement seems to echo those of, watch this, a growing contingent of people in the United States of America. See, we have this tendency to think that deep thinking, theology, and doctrine just aren't necessary for life. We seem to think that because some of these deeper things in God aren't immediately beneficial, that we don't really need them. But at the end of the day, the things that we're about to study today can save your soul. And so what we need to understand as we go into chapter 2 today, we're going into the deep waters of the Christian faith, but the best defense against the onslaught of seductive alternatives to Christ is, watch this church, a deep, vibrant understanding and affection for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to go deep today. But we need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. Father, we ask and pray, God, that you would be present with us now. We ask and pray that your spirit would meld our hearts with the text, that you would marinate this text into the deep, dark places of our soul, that it would penetrate the hardness of our heart and radically change us creating this affection in us for the good news, the story of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of its wide-reaching implications for our lives in everyday life. Father, help us. Father, we do not just want this to be an academic exercise nor an intellectual exercise. Father, we want this to be life transformation because that's what you've promised it to be. So God, meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do today is just focus on the teaching of legalism, and I want to present the fiction and then the fact. The fiction point number one is found in verse 16. We're going to look at the fiction of legalism, and it says in chapter 2, verse 16, I'm not going to take the text in order. I think you'll see why. Chapter 2, verse 16 says this, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What he's referring to is this teaching that was famous in Colossians from the Jewish legalizers called legalism. And it was this assertion that Christ is not sufficient to help you gain and maintain right relationship with God. Again, Christ is not sufficient. Christ is insufficient to help you gain and maintain right relationship with God. Therefore, what that means is you have to keep the law. If you want to keep the law, or if you want to be right with God, then keeping the law is the ground by which you find acceptance before a holy God. In other words, how do I get God to be for me? I got to keep the law. All 600 plus rules and regulations, you got to keep it all. How do I gain God as a friend? How do I maintain God's friendship? I've got to measure up to the law. I've got to measure up every day to the law. And this was the false teaching that was famous in Colossians, and it's famous in our day. Do we see legalism in the church today in this age? This thing is insidious. Now look again at verse 16, what Paul says. He says this, therefore let no one pass judgment on you, okay? Hold you to the standard so that you have to gain and maintain right relationship with God, 
when it comes to food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, the teaching of Paul's day was this, that strict observance of ceremonies, rules, rituals, externalism was how you gained and maintained right relationship with God. So how you cook your food and when you eat it and what you wear and what ritual ceremonies and what dates you observe, all of these things are how you gain God's favor and how you maintain God's favor. You might say, well, this, does anybody really do this today? A hundred percent, yes. I was, uh, in fact, in 2005, I had the privilege of going over to Israel and as we were staying at one of the hotels, we discovered that um, there are these uh, elevators called Shabbat elevators. And if you've never seen a Shabbat elevator, what it does is the doors open and close all on their own. They go up one level, open, close, up one level, open and close, up one level, and then back down, back down, and so on and so forth, so that you never have to touch the button. You want to know why? Because touching the button is considered work. And work is forbidden on the Sabbath. And therefore, if you touch the elevator button, you are violating the law of God. If you violate the law of God, you're not right with God. If you're not right with God, you can't maintain with God. Do you see where? Okay, well, does this really happen in America? I mean, that's Judaism. Does it really happen in Christianity? Well, of course. Well, if you don't attend the right church, or if you don't tithe enough, or if you don't dress the right way when you go to church, or if you don't observe certain rituals or last rites, or if you don't give enough money, or uh, in our day and age, if you don't recycle, or if you don't vote for the right political party, right? Okay? You cannot gain and maintain right relationship with God. And so what this turns, legalism turns, it turns relationship into religion and turns everything into a juggling act. Can I maintain all these rules and regulations? I don't know about you, I can maybe juggle three balls at a time, but I can't do 600 plus. You see, legalism is an oppressive theology. And here's why it's a fiction. Because all of these rules and regulations, here's what we need to understand. This is where it gets tricky. God is not condemning moral standards. Amen? He's not, convict, or he's not condemning personal convictions rooted in the word of God. Amen? But here's what he's doing. He's saying all the rules and regulations that we tend to put all of our hope into, they're nothing but a shadow. Verse 17, look at what it says. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let me ask you this. Does shadow have any power? Does a shadow have any power? Okay, it doesn't have any power. Can a, can a shadow hurt you? Can a shadow love you? Okay. Can rules, do rules and regulation have any power if they're nothing more than a shadow? No. They have no power to help you gain right relationship with God, and they have no power to help you maintain right relationship with God. The only thing that a shadow does is reveal the light. The purpose of the shadow of the Old Testament, the purpose of the law was to reveal the obnoxiously, excessively perfect nature of our God. And that giving us 600 rules and regulations is to reveal that we can't possibly keep them all. Our God, it's like like nothing for God to keep all of these rules. But for us, I can barely get through a 
day without struggling in my thoughts, without struggling with my emotions, without keeping my whole calendar together. I can barely keep me together. And God's got 600 of these. And the point of the law is to show me, Matt, you can't do it on your own. The purpose of the law was to reveal the holy character of our God. The purpose of all the rituals in the Old Testament was to prove the awful cost of our sin against a holy God. When thousands and thousands of gallons of blood were shed every year for the sins of Israel, it was to picture for us that the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to save us. And we needed a better savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. But here's why this Fiction is so appealing because it twists our view of sin. It twists our view of sin. It makes us think sin is kind of like a a balancing act. Um, Have you ever seen those legal scales? You know what I'm talking about? You kind of see them in in legal doc. um, You know what I'm talking about, right? And so as as long as you have more good than bad, um, you're in God's favor. And so as long as your good works outweigh your bad works, then as long as that, then we're in God's favor. But if our bad works start to outweigh our good works, well, then we're out of God's favor. And it's this constant balancing act. And here's what that causes when we view sin in this way. Number one, it causes pride. Because if I'm doing all of this good stuff before God, I can go into God's presence and be like, hey, check me out. I'm pretty awesome. Look at all this stuff that I've done. Look at how great it is. Look at how you should be privileged that I am part of your family. (laughs) And then we treat each other with pride. Well, if you don't perform, you don't measure up to my standards. If you don't live up to my list of rules, well, then I look down my nose at you and I think of you as less. Do we have any of that going on in the church? That's called the spirit of legalism. If you can't perform up to my standard, if you can't keep up with where I am, sorry, but I can't love you. But if you can keep up with me, then I can love you. Well, what's the problem with that? I've got a three-year-old at home, and if I held her to my standard of living, I would never love her. Do you see what I'm saying? She can't perform at my level. But if we measure each other that way, It's just going to cause pride in our hearts, or it's going to cause fear. I'm never going to measure up. And who wants to live in a community like that where you feel like you can never measure up to the expectations of another? Here's the reality of sin. Sin is not a balancing act of good versus bad. Sin is more like um, you're out in a picnic, and you've got a glass of tea, and all of a sudden, a bird flies over your tea and poops right in it. Now, you might think I'm just being crass to be crass, and I'm not. Let me ask you. So even if the bird just gets a tiny little sliver in there, not much, just a tiny little bit, are you going to drink it? No, why? It's contaminated. God says, your sin is not a balancing act. It's more like that. And once sin gets into the equation and contaminates you, everything is lost. That's why James says in chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles with just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
You see, before an impossibly perfect and holy God, no amount of law-keeping can ever help us gain or maintain right, right standing or relationship with God. We all fall short. We all cannot measure up. And that is the best news on the planet. You know why? Because that means if God has provided another way, a better way, that means all of us have the same chance to make it. You want to know what that good news is? It would have been a great spot for an amen. (laughs) Do you want to know what it is? Amen. All right, so let's start looking at the facts of the gospel. Verse 11 through 15. I'm just going to read these out loud here. In him. This is going to get a little weird. I'm going to explain it as we go. But follow along with me as I read aloud. And this is why we wanted to leave this section uh, for itself today. In verse 11, it says this. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made with human hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, together with him, having forgive us, forgiven our trespasses. But by the way, this is one of the most incredible passages in all the Bible. It might seem a little confusing. This is incredible. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing all of our offenses to the cross. And then he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul's going to do here in the text is Paul is going to uh, remind the Colossians, remind us of the gospel. And here's what the gospel is. It is the conviction that we believe that Christ is the only ground of our acceptance before a holy God. The only ground by which we can gain and maintain right relationship with God. Now, some of us might be thinking right now, well, the gospel, we've heard all this before. I mean, do we really need to go over this again? Well, let me say this. Paul believed the Colossians needed to go over it again. I believe we need to go over it again. And even when I was prepping this message, I realized I needed to go over this again. We need to hear the gospel again and again and again because why we forget We forget the good news of the gospel. We forget how easily it applies to the crevices of life. When we get discouraged and distraught, we lose hope and we lose joy. We forget how the gospel connects to every piece, every facet of our lives. We just forget. And when Christians of every generation find themselves besieged by those who would mock, deride, and discredit their faith, or we just find ourselves simply being crushed by life, We must return to the simplicity of the gospel again and 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 say it with me, again. All right, so Paul is going to describe the gospel in language that might not seem familiar to us, but would have been familiar to the Colossians. So are you ready to dive in? Let's unpack it. First word is imputation. And all God's people said, what? Um, The first thing that you have to understand about this text, and if we don't get this locked into our understanding, none of this text is going to make sense. We have to understand imputation, the doctrine of imputation, and here's what it means. It is a legal forensic term that changes your legal standing. It is a legal forensic term that changes your legal standing before a holy 
righteous, perfect God. And there's, this is where I get this. Frequently throughout the text, if we back up to verse 9, it says throughout the text, in him, with him, in him, with him, in him, with him. What Paul is saying here in the text is when you are in Christ, when you are with Christ by faith, say it with me, by faith, okay, though you were not yourself circumcised, though you yourself were not buried, though you yourself were not raised, okay, look at verse 11, for in him also you were circumcised. Well, you weren't circumcised. Verse 12, having been buried with him, well, you weren't buried Um, You go further down to verse 12, in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith. Okay, you weren't raised. But here's what imputation is. Imputation is this legal act where God changes your status by the law. In other words, though you weren't circumcised, though you weren't buried, though you weren't raised, God legally treats you as if you were. Did you catch that? God treats you legally as if you were, as if you died, as if you were buried, as if you were raised to newness of life. It's like a wedding. When I do a wedding and I stand in front of two people and I say, and do you take this person to be your lawfully loaded wife and blah, 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 and and do you take this person? And they say, I do. And then I say, by the power invested in me, by the authority of the commonwealth of the state of Pennsylvania, and more importantly, by the great and glorious God, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss your bride. Now, what has changed in the scenario? Are they all of the sudden like these weird mystical husband and wife juices going to be poured into their heads from on high and they're going to be these magical people that they weren't two seconds before? No. What has changed? their legal status. They're still the same person they were, but now in the state of Pennsylvania, the state views them differently and treats them differently. And when you say, I do to Christ by faith, you say, I do, Jesus. I do believe that you are the only savior for me. I do believe that I'm a sinner. I do believe that I've been separated. I do believe that I need a savior. When you place your faith and trust in him and you say, I do, God says, married, done, changed. You are now legally no longer a sinner condemned. You are a saint and freed. You are my child. I bring you in. You are changed. That's imputation. Now you might say, well, that's kind of a crazy word for it, but man, it radically changes the way we view the Bible. So how does God view you as perfect even though you're still a sinner? Here's what he imputes. Death, burial, and resurrection. That's the second point. Look at verse 11. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What Paul is doing here in the text is he's using three images to illustrate death, burial, and resurrection. He's using these images, circumcision, baptism, and resurrection, okay? These are physical symbols that illustrate spiritual realities of imputation. Are you with me? Are you hanging with me? Okay, good. 
All right, so let's look at circumcision really quick. In him also you were circumcised, and look at what it says, with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is a picture of Jesus Christ's death. That physical picture of circumcision done for males is the cutting off of a small piece of flesh. But it was a picture of a spiritual reality when Christ was placed on that cross and flesh was ripped from his body. Why? Because in that spiritual reality of Christ's flesh being ripped from his body on the cross, God treats you if you trust in Jesus by faith as if you died with him on the cross. Does that make sense? All of this is viewed through the lens now of imputation. If by faith you come to Jesus and you say, I do, then he views you as if you died with him on that cross. Moving on, verse 12, hang with me. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, so being buried with him. Uh, we, We love baptizing people. And when we do it, we go dunk people in this massive Olympic-sized pool that we have just down the hallway, which we're blessed to have, and we dunk people under the water. It's a powerful symbol. They go under the water. It's a picture of their burial. It's a picture of that old person that was controlled by sin being buried and then what? Raised. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality that when you identified with Christ by faith, you were buried with him in his tomb. Which means all of your sin, all of your shame, all of the wrong that you've ever done was buried in that tomb and covered by that massive stone. Are are we tracking? Does that have implications? If your sin has been buried with Christ, okay. And then finally, it finishes out here in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, which you were raised with him through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The physical act of Christ raising from the grave is the spiritual reality for us that God no longer treats us as if we are alive in our sin, but now we are alive and risen with Christ. So here's the thing. If you have died with Christ in your sin, there is therefore now no penalty for you for your sin. Law-keeping can neither gain nor maintain right relationship with God for you, and there is no penalty for you when you blow it. If your sin was judged on the cross and you died with Christ, the penalty is gone. Amen? If your sin has been buried with Christ... It's no longer a balancing act of gaining and maintaining right relationship with God by how good or how bad you are. God no longer sees you through your sin. He sees you through his son as perfect. And if you have been raised to newness of Christ in, in life, you have been empowered to live free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin. Here's the truth. You don't have to sin anymore. Look again at the text. If we, if God treats us as if these things are true of us, that we have died with him through this circumcision of the flesh, that we have been buried with him 
in the picture of baptism, and we have been raised with him from the dead, if that is how God sees us, then you have an utterly, radically new, transformed way of living. It is not ruled by sin. It is not governed by its power. You are free to be everything that Christ made you to be. And that means you are now alive in a way that you have never been. Look again at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him alive together with him. Faith in Christ, watch this, doesn't make good people gooder. It doesn't make good people gooder. Some people come to church and like, well, I want to get my life straightened out. I want to get this straightened out. I want to get my kids in order. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's, it's really just the balancing scale thing. I just want more good in my ledger than bad. And the reality is faith in Christ coming to church ultimately is not about making good people gooder. It's about making dead people alive. That's what all of this is about. This has nothing to do with making you a better person. This has everything to do with helping you to realize you need to die so that you can be raised in newness of life. It's kind of like your taste buds. I grew up, <laughs> you say what? <laughs> I grew up in Iowa, and uh, when I was growing up, I had absolutely no taste for steak. I had no taste for it whatsoever. And my dad loved steak. I mean, my dad would eat steak every single night if he could. And we just always tell my dad, like, dad, I can't handle any more steak. But we grew up like right next to it. There was like steak cows everywhere. And we loved steak. And it was like the best steak on the face of the planet, right? And I hated it. Had no taste for steak. And it wasn't until I got to college and I went out to Colorado and uh, went out with some buddies of mine um, skiing. And one night we went out to a steakhouse and I said, you know what, I've hated steak my whole life, but I'm going to try the best thing they got on the menu. So I got the $100 porterhouse massive, and I said, make this thing as delicious as you can. And they brought that steak back, and they plopped it right down in front of me, and I started eating, and all of a sudden, what happened? My taste buds came alive. Like, this is the best thing I've ever had. I can't believe I would like steak my entire life. And what did I do? When I went back to Iowa, all of a sudden now, every time I go home, all I want to do is eat steak. I got woke on steak. (laughs) Praise God. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. Maybe you've been reading your Bible. Maybe you've been watching this whole Christianity. You're thinking, you're just like, I don't have any appetite for this. It's not appealing to me. It's not appetizing to me at all. You're still dead. If you have no appetite for God, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's nothing more delicious in the face of the planet than the goodness of God. Nothing. Nothing. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little excited. If you're new here, welcome. (laughs) There's nothing that tastes better than the goodness of the Lord. But if you haven't tasted him yet, and your taste buds haven't been awakened, stick with it. God will awaken your soul. Maybe you've been around church, the Bible, Christians your whole life, and you just, you don't get it yet. 
You've got to ask God to awaken your appetite for him. That's why it says in the text, I use the analogy, if you were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the thing that makes you dead to God, the thing that makes God unappealing to you is your sin. That's what makes God unappealing to you. Look at what it says here in the text. Sin isn't just what you do, it's who you are. In other words, you were dead in your trespasses. Those are the things that you do when God says, don't go here, and you decide to go there. That's a trespass. But then also the circumcision of your flesh, that's who you are by nature. You are by nature sinful. You are by nature broken. You by nature are not able to please God. It's in your DNA. That's why you say, well, I want to please God, but I don't know how, and I don't know if I can. It's because you're a broken sinner. Can I go a little bit deeper here just for a second? You remember the uh, old fable of the scorpion and the frog? Have you ever heard of it? Yep. Scorpion comes to the frog one day and he says to the frog, hey, I need a ride across the pond. The frog says, no, 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 you're going you're gonna to sting me in the back. I, um, that's crazy. The scorpion says, no, 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 I really need to get to the other side of the pond. I promise you I won't sting you in the back. I guarantee you, I promise you I won't do it. Frog reluctantly agrees to do it. Scorpion hops on the back and they start jumping lily pad to lily pad. And things are going, but all of a sudden he starts to feel this shooting pain in his back and he misses the lily pad. And as he's trying to hold on, he starts sinking with the scorpion and he looks back and all of a sudden he sees this stinger jammed right into his shoulder. As he looks back at the scorpion, he says, what are you doing? You're going to kill us both. To which the scorpion replies, I couldn't help it. It's in my nature. It's in the nature for a scorpion to sting. It's in the nature for a lion to kill. It's in the nature of a monkey to go crazy. It's in the nature of human beings to sin. That's why we don't find God naturally appetizing. The only way that that can be changed is when we humbly come to Christ and we say, Jesus, I need you to change my heart and make me alive to you. And when we do that, here's something else really cool that will happen. Verse 13, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin and the uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all the trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can I, can I shoot straight with you? I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm a pretty good person. Matt, you're a pretty good guy. I mean, you, you guys, you and Deanna, you came to church and you dove right into a small group. You invited your small group to your wedding, which I thought was so sweet of you guys. And then you jumped in and you started working with our, our, our kids on Sunday nights. I mean, you're, you're good people, right? And so, so when we stand before Kevin and Kelly, good people, man. Like you're serving the Lord and you're trying to get work done and you're getting ready for your wedding. You're so excited just to, to do life together and you're, you're good people, right? Lindsay, you're good people. You and Dave, you go and you stand in front of an abortion clinic and you pray. You don't, you don't pick at people. You don't yell at people. You just pray. And then you tell people as they come, like, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. You're good people, right? So all of that goodness ought to make us worthy to enter into the kingdom of God, right? Well, here's the problem. Like we said earlier, it's not a balancing act. It's more like poop in your tea. But here's the thing. We want God to grade on a curve. We want God to grade on a curve. We want to say, well, God, I kept 99.99% of the law. Isn't that good enough? And God says, no, 
Because where is the balance then? Where is the standard? So how do we experience forgiveness? How do we get made right with God? Well, look at what he says here in the text. Let me put it like this. I would say a pretty good person would be a person that only sinned once a day. Amen? Would that be a pretty good person? Or how about once a week? Would that be pretty good if, like, guys, if you could just manage one time a week, would that be good? Would that be really good? I'd be, I'd be, I'd be cruising pretty good. But think about it. You live 72 years and you only sin once a day. That's 27,000 sins before a holy God. Are you going to stand before the judge and is he going to declare you not guilty? Come on in. Or if it's only one a week, 3,700. Now, if I stand before a judge and I say, yeah, I have violated the law 3,700 times in my 72 years of life, what's that judge going to do? He's going to throw me in the slammer. So how do we get forgiven of the record of debt that we've accumulated over life? Look at what it says in the text. God made us alive, or verse 13, and you who are dead in your, where am I? Yeah, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive to him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. All those times in which you sinned against the Lord is like an IOU that you have to pay on. And when you have to pay on it, you accumulate a debt. And he takes that ledger by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That is that God is a just God. He's not just going to let it go, right? When someone murders in our country, we don't just let it go. Well, most of the time, we don't just let it go. Amen? How did he do it? How does he not let it go? This he set aside, how? Nailing it to the cross. So, so, when typically when a criminal would be put up on a cross, they would, they would nail above him his violation, what he did to get on the cross. And remember what Jesus did? He said, king of the Jews, because he claimed to be king, that was his sin. And what Jesus, what God did, is he imputed your sin unto Christ. When you trust in Jesus, he imputes your sin unto Christ. He treats Christ as if, He committed your sin so that God can impute Christ's righteousness, his perfection, his moral excellence onto you so that God can treat you as if you have always been perfect. So that in nailing our record to the cross, he didn't just nail parchment to a tree He nailed his own son and judged and condemned and gave the full brunt of his wrath and his anger for all of our sin on his son so that you and I could be set free. So that we could say, in my place condemned he stood so that in his place pardoned I can stand. Here's the final reality about the gospel and the good news, the facts of the gospel is verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and the authority and put them to open shame. There is this image when when a Roman 
uh, emperor would go out and he would conquer another nation, he would oftentimes come back in his what was called triumphal procession where he would march through the city in a chariot and his armies would march behind him and the people would respond and they would throw out daisies and, and this sweet aroma, daisies and, and roses and it would crush the petals and it would release this aroma of victory into the city and behind them they would march all of the prisoners that they had caught in war. And what he's alluding to here is this, all of those rulers, all of those authorities that we tend to believe have power and authority over our lives, Jesus Christ through the cross has captured them, has imprisoned them, and is taking them to prison so that they can rule and reign over your life no more. Now, there were many people who believed in Paul's day that their lives and their destiny were controlled by capricious gods. Stars, nature, weather, And today, many of us would dismiss such notions as silly myths. We would say that, but there are many that still think of ourselves as held in bondage by iron forces, inexorable biological laws that we can't change. We have convinced ourselves that we are simply the products of the forces of nature over which we have no power and we have no control. And so everything, criminality, addiction, orientation, our very personalities we chalk up to is genetic destiny. We think it's the results of just who I am. I can't help it. It results in a sense of helplessness in this world and it also results in a sense of no moral responsibility. Where once we used to say our fate was written in the stars, now we say our fate is written in our genes in our DNA. But notice what it says again in the text. Jesus Christ has disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the things that we think hold power and sway over our lives and control us with an ironclad will, and he has put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them through the cross. Our faith is not written in the stars and our faith is not written, our fate is not written in our DNA. All those forces that would seek to exert control over our lives, Christ has conquered. And all God's people said, so let me say this, you are no longer a prisoner to your circumstances. You are no longer a prisoner to your feelings and emotions. You are no longer a prisoner to your orientation. You are no longer a prisoner to your impulses. You have been set free. And whom the Son sets free, do you really believe that? So I ask you this this morning as we close. You don't have to gain and maintain right relationship with God by law keeping. It's impossible. You cannot do it. And you are laying upon yourself an exhausting expectation that God never gives you. So how do we gain and maintain right relationship with God? I closed my Bible too too soon, forgive me. Look back at verse six as we close out chapter two. How do we gain and maintain right relationship with God? Verse six, therefore as you received Christ Jesus, and gained right relationship with God. So walk 
in him to maintain right relationship with God. If you're here this morning and you want to draw near to God and you feel far away, draw near through Christ. If you're here this morning and you are weary and you need strength, come near through Christ. If you are here this morning and you are broken and desperate and needy, come through Christ. If you are hurting and confused, come to God through Christ. Receive him, walk with him. That is how we gain and maintain right relationship with God. Father, we need you. We need your son. Father, apart from Christ, we have nothing good. So Lord, as we have looked at the gospel from a truly unique perspective this morning, I pray that you would help us to see how the gospel really does infuse itself into every aspect of our lives. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for imputation that you see us as if the way you see your son, as if we've never sinned. God, I know who I am. I know how broken I am. And that God, you can view me that way. Puts awe in my heart for how truly good you are. I pray, Father, for the person here who has not yet tasted your goodness, that they too would taste and see that you truly are good. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.